Hello and welcome to the Tradecast. I'm John Bakey, Head of Digital for uh, the Trade, and today I'm joined by our editor, John Watkins. Hi, John. And our senior reporter, Hayley McDowell, recently <laughs> promoted. <laughs> I know, she's all red faced now. <laughs> um, it's uh, been a little while since we've done a podcast. Uh, this is due to the Trade's offices being refurbished. However, we, uh, we hope we'll be delivering uh, several more to you very soon. Um, now, I'd like to start off because uh, it was yesterday, uh, it was International Women's Day, and we had a special feature written by Hayley, uh, and maybe you would like to just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, yeah, sure. So, it was actually really well read, which I was pleased about. I thought you were about um, to say it was really well written there. So no, it was really well written. You can't <laughs> um, No, it was really well read, which I was really pleased about. Um, I managed to get a few sort of senior female biocides to talk to me about um, their views on sort of gender equality in, in asset management. And uh, they all kind of said the same kind of thing. Um, not quite what I was expecting, but um, nevertheless, it was good. Um, the sort of overriding view was that there's obviously a huge sort of gap, gender gap, um, in, you know, in biocide firms. But... The majority of uh, the women I spoke to didn't feel like their gender, you know, sort of stopped them. Kind of held them back. Yeah, yeah didn't hold them back, uh, which I thought was really good. Um, a lot of them mentioned um, the initiatives that all of their firms are, uh, you know, moving forward with, which sound really promising as well. Um, but, you know, there's still this kind of alpha male culture, which I think... And it's not just the buy side, you know, it goes across financial services. Yeah. It's kind of a notorious... Um, well, you said a wolf of Wall Street almost. Exactly, kind of yeah. It is an always yeah, yeah, wolf a, of yeah, Wall yeah. Street. A <laughs> macho culture. Exactly, yeah. Um, but that is, I'd hope at least, a thing of the past. I, I think largely. Um, but I did ask all of them as well, if you were to speak to a female friend, would you encourage her to join the asset management industry and everyone I spoke to said yeah so I was quite yeah I thought that was really good I thought maybe a few would say "Mm." Um, one one particular woman did say she would encourage it but she would warn that her friend would have to be comfortable in an all male environment yeah (laughs) so if if they're saying that once they're in the roles then they're not being held back by gender or anything like that but do you think then it's more at the very early stages of, of looking into these jobs that people have put off. So, you know, once they're in, they can move up. But when you're looking at jobs as a woman, do you look at an asset manager or a trading desk kind of job, front office, and say, no, that's not going to be for me? Do you think that's where maybe more work needs to be put in in terms of education? I think so, yeah. I think um, one of the women I spoke to did say um, that she thinks it's at that level that this is happening. So women just aren't aren't applying as much as men would. And there's, yeah. I suppose, several reasons for that. I mean, the job itself is very, it's not, you know, it's long hours. It's it's not kind of friendly in that way. It's not flexible. It's not like, flexible. You look at market signs, you're not going to, you have to work from, exactly. you, you know, nine to five and slightly outside of that. Yeah. Um, you can't work from home because of a lot of the regulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I'm not, I mean, everyone I spoke to was really optimistic about the future, but I think we are right at the beginning. Of, of this change but the good thing is is that you know these women wanted to get the word out you know it's asset management's not such a bad not such a scary <laughs> not place not such a scary place yeah so okay. um, 
but yeah, the full uh, feature is on the website, so definitely check it out. Okay, brilliant. Um, now, I should mention that uh, today's podcast is, uh, is sponsored by Thomson Reuters. Um, they've got a, a couple of new initiatives uh, that they're pushing forward with uh, in regard to uh, providing support for their clients from MIFID 2. Uh, now, earlier today, I caught up with uh, Brennan Carley, who is their global head of enterprise propositions and product frameworks. That was a bit of a mouthful, but I said it successfully. Um, so um, let's just listen to what uh, Brennan had to say. So, Brennan, uh, thanks for uh, coming on the show. It's good to speak to you. Good to speak to you as well, John. Uh, now, you've uh, been quite a busy couple of weeks for uh, for you guys uh, in terms of announcements around MIFID 2 with, with the one last week, one uh, today. Um, and uh, maybe if we just start on, on the first, which is a, uh, a new analytics service that you're offering that's, uh, that's MIFID 2 ready. Now, what does MIFID 2 ready mean uh, in terms of sort of capabilities and, and how that's going to help clients? Yeah, so I think it's probably useful to start with what are the challenges that the customers have, you know, with MIFID. So, you know, fundamentally, MIFID is a data challenge. There's a lot of new content that's going to be made available both by uh, venues that have not historically provided data as well as by existing exchanges. Customers need to be able to take that data, consume it, process it, uh, and they also need to be able to then analyze that data combined with their own trade data uh, to determine whether they're actually compliant with a variety of the different obligations under MIFID. So we've been really working as a key partner with financial institutions that are, are tackling their MIFID programs. We're putting in place the technology to make it as easy as possible. Uh, and we're trying to, to uh, help customers leverage existing investments and existing infrastructure that they have. Because they're trying to get this all achieved in a very short time and with uh, very tight budgets. So, you know, when it comes to uh, our partnership with KX, um, you know, as you said, it's, it's a MIFID-ready uh, offering. What we're offering really is a high-performance, real-time processing platform that leverages the technology from KX to do real-time analytics and is integrated with our enterprise platform, our real-time feeds, and our historical feeds. Uh, so that customers have a platform that is plugged into the content that they need for their MIFID compliance. Okay. Uh, now, you, you mentioned there uh, some stuff around uh, real time, and it seems that uh, certainly the regulatory push and, and perhaps just a more general industry push is towards uh, this process of working with data in real time. Now, how does that sort of practically work for firms in terms of the way that they, they handle and work with with data and uh, and how are you going to sort of be able to assist them? Yeah, that's right, John. So, you know, really the two drivers are, one, the regulators are pushing for uh, more real-time and more transparency, uh, and second is risk managers within banks are, uh, you know, not satisfied anymore with end-of-day or overnight kind of uh, analysis. Okay. So they're looking much more for real-time visibility of, of positions, questionable trades, and so forth. The, the real-time capabilities have actually been in place at most of uh, the banks and the asset managers for a number of years in the front office. Um, so, you know, most of our large customers have our enterprise platform, our real-time feeds, and so on. So the challenge really is leveraging that capability and making it available to the middle and the back office, which is where the risk management and the compliance functions are performed. Okay. Uh, now, your announcement also stated that uh, sort of 
when the uh, systematic internalizer regime is, uh, is introduced in 2018, that uh, that functionality will be added. Now, systematic internalizers has been a, a bit of a big uh, sort of industry issue uh, recently, uh, particularly uh, something that trade audience has been talking about a lot. How how are you going to kind of be able to help in in the systematic internalizer area? Yeah, so the challenge, you know, for SI is that firms need to determine whether they're an, a systematic internalizer or not on an individual instrument level, because uh, mm -hmm. they might be a SI in one instrument but not another, even if it's in the same asset class. So I might be an SI, uh, you know, in, in Vodafone but not in, uh, you know, BT. Um, and so they need to be able to do, they need to have access to the data um, the, the market data from all of the different venues, you know, where the instruments are traded, they need to have access to trade data, and they need to analyze that in real time. So we're working with KX as part of our Velocity Analytics platform to provide a solution that integrates that data, does the analysis, uh, and produces the appropriate uh, reporting for firms to determine whether they're uh, an SI in a particular symbol. Okay. Uh, now, your, your most recent announcement that's uh, come out today is that uh, you, you've teamed up with TradeWeb uh, and going to be working on some solutions around MIFID II compliance. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that, uh, that partnership and, and what kind of stuff you're going to be able to offer? Sure. So we, we've had a long-time partnership with TradeWeb, and we've been working uh, with them as well as with a number of customers on an APA offering. So. Um, MIFID requires both pre-trade and post-trade reporting, and firms can either do that directly or they can do that through an APA. So um, we're working with TradeWeb to make available an APA that TradeWeb will operate, and that will allow firms to provide that reporting through TradeWeb so they don't have to do it themselves, they can do it through TradeWeb. It will also yeah. be a multi-asset class APA uh, because Customers obviously trade fixed income, but they trade equities, they trade derivatives, they trade, you know, FX. And so they want to be able to trade report through um, as few APAs as, as possible just to minimize the complexity. Uh, and so TradeWeb will be offering a multi-asset class APA. We're powering that with our content, and we're also working with our clients to allow them to leverage uh, some of the, the products that we offer, like TREP and so forth, so that they can actually connect to that trade web APA for their trade reporting. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today, Brennan. It's been uh, really insightful. Thank you very much, John. Okay, welcome back. Um, now, moving on, news agenda. The FCA has given the asset management industry a bit of a warning shot. It has indeed. This was really interesting, and this happened sort of almost on consecutive days. So the FCA visited uh, several investment management firms yeah. um, and they basically slammed the buyer side saying that they are totally unprepared for unbundling and best execution. And there is less than 12 months to go. That, so, that is quite damning. Yeah, and they've, you know, they've warned the buyer side that they're going to start penalising for this, they're going to come down a lot harder than they have been in the past. Um, but yeah, complete, complete failures across the board. Um, they've identified poor practices at the majority of firms they visited. Um, they couldn't demonstrate meaningful improvements in terms of how they spend customers' money um, through the dealing commission arrangements, which is obviously unbundling. Um, and for best execution, they said that data was inaccurate, it wasn't together. Um, 
And they did mention, obviously, that fixed income was less sophisticated than equities in terms of best execution practice. Mm. But they said um, some firms have been more proactive than others, and they said this kind of highlights that there are ways around it. <coughs> so, um, yeah, the FCA getting a bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I mean, it doesn't... If there hasn't been an improvement, it doesn't surprise me that they probably are quite angry because there was a, I don't know if any, anybody remembers, but some time ago there was another, there was a thematic review around best execution and, you know, it was, again, pretty poor um, from the report the FCA produced. Uh, there was a lot of misunderstanding about what actually constituted best execution. There was a lot of people, I guess, kind of involved and engaged with it at a very kind of shallow level. Uh, but not really actually pushing forward with it as a way to help them, you know, do what the regulators want them to do, which is provide a better service to their client base. Because um, uh, you know, ultimately, if we look at all the regulators, particularly MIFID two, the big push, the main theme of it is a better deal for end investors. Yeah. Um, and so the feeling was they weren't really delivering that. They weren't applying it across asset classes. They were only doing it in equities, and it was just, you know, it was a very uh, amateurish attempt. Now one would hope that, given that was about two years ago now, that uh, the situation would have improved. It seems like it absolutely hasn't, mm -hmm. uh, which is, yeah, yeah, as you say, really worrying. With just nine months or just over nine months to go uh, until uh, MIFID two is introduced. Fortunately. The trade is, is here to help and is keen to help the industry. Uh, some of you may know we did an event uh, last week uh, looking at systematic internalizers, a subject over which there's a huge amount of misunderstanding. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I think that's sort of a, a good place to say as well. We had Kay Swinburne there as a keynote speaker mm. and she kept talking about Humble this sort of, <laughs> She kept sort of speaking about this spirit of MIFID 2 and, you know, the spirit of the rules. And I think that's something that firms should sort of bear in mind when they are trying to comply with best execution with unbundling, think yeah. about the spirit of the regulation, what is the point of this, why are they, you know, implementing this. Um, but I also think, you know, with the FCA and all the failures of these buy-side firms, you know, very early on in the year, and, you know, even since, there's been countless surveys of, you know, 50% of buy-siders have no idea what they're doing for unbundling. Mm. You know, 20% of buy-side firms don't know what best execution is. It's just, it's like one thing after another. Yeah. And I think there's definitely this like misunderstanding, um, miscommunication. But I think what Case Moonburn was saying about the point of the regulation was a really sort of valid point um, for her to make. Yeah. Um, you wonder sometimes what the motivation to actually be compliant on day one is. I mean, the, thing, the deadlines for everything get pushed out. Yeah, pushed out. So mm -hmm. why would you spend time and money preparing for a date? And I'm pretty sure MIFID isn't going to move again. But yeah, in, in the past, it's shown what's the point of getting ready with ample time when the deadline could be kicked on down the line. I mean, we've just seen, uh, and, and also you, you don't know how strict regulators are going to be from day one. We've just seen variation margin requirements come in for derivatives. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact this was brought up at the G20 in 2009, eight years ago, yeah. people still weren't ready for, the, for day one. And they were asking for more time. And subsequently, the regulators aren't going to give you more time to bear, but they're going to be a bit lenient in terms of actually clamping down on people that aren't compliant. Yeah. So where's your, yeah, it's, it's tough to see the motivation when you never know when the deadline's going to get moved and you're not exactly terrified of you know, the uh, getting punished if yeah. you're not compliant. Yeah. So I, I think... Like, um, I leave it to the very last minute. 
They're notorious for that. Yeah. Everyone tells me that. I think uh, um, there there is a good motivation, which is is actually, you know, if you give your client a better service, if you're getting the best execution results for them, and that's that's going to feed through to better returns, then well, that you know, arguably that should be your motivation. Uh, yeah, it should be. Um, there's another interesting point was made to me regarding the uh, sell side role in this, and, and they certainly got a stern telling off from uh, from uh, Case Winburn uh, last week. Um, and that was, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of complaints around MIFID 2 have centered around the fact that, you know, more trading's moving on to the London Stock Exchange or other lit venues, and, you know, that's going to cost uh, X amount of money. You know, like, let's say for your average you know, big top tier investment bank, it's maybe going to cost them like another 20 million, you know, pounds in fees. I mean, these firms pay their CEOs 30 million. <laughs> so you do have to wonder where do your priority lie when, when that's 20 million pound to potentially give your client base uh, a better service because it has to be focused on achieving the absolute best execution possible, which mm-hmm. is obviously something uh, where broker crossing networks were a concern for regulators and that's why they won't be a, a thing under MIFID too. Um, Anyway, in addition, the trade is going to be doing an event uh, later on in the year as well um, called the MIFID Checklist. Uh, this is really, uh, we want it to be very much a, a kind of reader-driven um, event where we're kind of bringing to you exactly what you kind of want to know about MIFID too. So we're, we're definitely keen to hear from everybody about, uh, about what they'd like to see uh, from an event like that. And uh, next... Oh, no, not next month, this month. Uh, we're also going to be over in New York to help our US audience to understand a little bit more about MIFID 2, um, how it's going to affect their business. So uh, do keep, uh, stay tuned to the tradenews.com for more information about those events. Stations are filling up fast for that. They, they are for the US there? event, absolutely. So uh, do visit our website now and, and get signed up. What date is that, John? It is the 28th of March. Okay, and then uh, one final thing. Moving on a little bit from the doom and gloom that the FCA spread around to perhaps a different kind of doom and gloom, yeah. which it's is a, the rise of the machines. It is another kind of doom and gloom story for, for the buy side. So a uh, recent report by uh, OpenS uh, research and consulting firm, they've predicted that by 2025, um, the number of employees in asset management globally will be reduced by 90,000. Um, and in capital markets, uh, again, globally, by 230,000. Um, this story kind of blew up on the website this week. Yeah. I think people are, are interested in... Um, jobs, uh, yeah, but I think it's also the technology, because I think AI has become you know, one of those buzzwords where it's quite difficult to imagine how it can be applied to trading desks um, and how the technology is used. So, I mean, I spoke to a CEO um, at Portware, yeah. Uh, and he was speaking about AI, um, and that will be going up on the website soon. Uh, he gave a really good sort of in-depth um, analysis of how AI is actually applied to training desks. Um, and I think that, you know, you, you see the word AI a lot in headlines these days, and I think there's definitely growing interest. It's, it's almost not quite blockchain, but, you know, it's becoming one yeah. of those um, fintech, you know. I, I think actually it's interesting that... that uh, there is a kind of interest and, and, and perhaps people treating this as something new, but uh, of course the reality is that AI has existed for the trading desk for a long time. I mean, an algorithm is is essentially a, a somewhat simplistic form of AI, 
and obviously as it becomes more and more complicated, it's going to be able to take over more and more functions. Uh, I think that's the crucial thing. You know, the very first algorithms were very simplistic in the way they operated. Um, now they're becoming more complicated. They're being they're able to take in more data and and you know we've got sort of things like algos that can select other algos and select venues and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you've got to imagine that uh, yeah, eventually. As that technology becomes better and it becomes able to make um, decisions, complicated decisions, then it, the, the sort of chain is going to get moved up and up and up. And you can imagine the trading desk of the future might almost just be a sort of compliance guy who's there making sure the algorithms operate within Overseeing. the required limits. But that might be it. Yeah. And obviously that is going to be worrying for, for, for people in the industry. Exactly, yeah. But, I mean, surely there's an argument that with every new... Because all these technology advancements come on through you know, decades now. Yeah. But with every advancement, there seems to be jobs opening up. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, one you, closed door. Yeah. You you may then have somebody who's actually working on the development of AI. You know, you might go from being your, maybe you're a head trader today, or maybe you're a head trader in a decade from now. Um, and as AI comes to to do more and more, then you're going to move. Yeah, maybe you're going to go and work for one of these companies developing these smart AIs. Maybe you're going to uh, move up to being a more kind of strategic decision maker about how you're deploying AI within the business. So, yeah, I mean, change is inevitable. Um, I think it's um, interesting, though, because 2025 is not that far away. No, it's... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, you'll often find that the most outrageous predictions of what can happen in the future are nowhere near as outrageous as what really happens. So oh, um, maybe it'll be even earlier than that. Let's just hope that robots can attend our events otherwise. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Do keep on the website for my interview with um, Alfred, CEO at Portware. Um, he'll be discussing AI technology for you guys that want more information on that. Brilliant. Um, and then uh, I guess just one last thing, which is the uh, the trade is currently uh, heading for the printing press very soon. So, John, do you want to give us a bit of a, a sneak peek of what we can expect? Sure. The one last uh, shameless plug for this episode. So, yep, Q1 edition going to press in just a matter of days now. We've got in there stories on the resurgence of the sales trader role. The rise of buy side to buy side trading. We've got a nice little feature on variation margins and how asset managers dealt with with day one. And the cover interview is going to be uh, a fireside chat with our trader of the year from the awards uh, in November, and that was Alliance's Sasha Becker. Wow. So keep an eye out for that one. Excellent. Well, that's all we've got time for today. So I'd just like to thank uh, John and Haley, and thank everybody for listening. And we'll see you next time.